You go through and you look at Scripture and you look at the history. There has never been a time when God's people were not exiles. Abraham was an exile. Moses was an exile. Noah was an exile. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were exiles. Jeremiah was an exile. Isaiah was an exile. You go through. John was an exile. Peter was an exile. Paul was an exile. The history of God's people is one of exiles. Believers, you and I were exiles on this earth long before society said we were. Are you looking for meaning or a word from God that's relevant to your life? Are you searching for a better understanding of who God is? Well, you're in the right place. You found the Gary Talks About God podcast. This is a weekly podcast that comes to you from the pulpit of Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. The podcast is hosted by Red Bank Senior Pastor Gary Sanders. Now let's get ready to take that walk through God's Word with our pastor, teacher, and friend. Hey, he's that guy we call Gary. If you would, just go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, We're not going to start all over, uh, but we're going to start there this morning. And as we do, ask you for just a little bit of patience for my opening this morning is a little bit longer uh, than usual as, as we finish looking at Peter this morning with the title of the message, Welcome to the Exile. All right, because he writes right there in the very beginning, and that's the word I want you to look at. It says, to those who are elect exiles. Exiles. That word exile right now is currently, I guess you would say, in vogue in Christian circles. And it's easy to understand why. Right? If we look o- back over the, the past year, and we look at COVID-19, at the end of 2019, we really could not, I believe, imagined government policies that would prevent churches from worshiping. Now, we understand everything that was going on. I mean, I, I do want to be a little deference to them because when it started to come out, no one knew what was happening. Right? But we couldn't imagine, even then, though, restrictions that say, well, churches can't gather for worship. Then you go through and you look over the course of the year and you saw uh, some churches continuing to worship after it looked like COVID was data was coming in that was conflicting. You look at Grace Community Church in L.A. and what they did uh, with the church and revoking some uh, contracts that they had because they continued to meet. You look and it's made national news of the two pastors who have been arrested in Canada for continuing to preach. One of their churches is literally wardened off by two fences with blackout drapes in front of it so you can't even see that there's a church behind the fences. Current debate in Congress today centers on the Equality Act. 
And part of that act is the repeal of what is known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And, and that act, RAFA, as it is sometimes referred to, was an avenue for, for churches or religious organizations to apply for an exemption. Past couple years, there's been subtle language change from Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, usually simplified down to the freedom of religion, and it's changed to the freedom of worship. It's okay for you to go to your place of worship for an hour whenever they meet, as long as when you leave, that's all that you've done. It's not the ability to exercise your religion in public, exercise it in the facility where you worship. 2015, the Supreme Court heard the case of Obergefell v. Hodges in which same-sex marriage was adjudicated as legal. And there was a very interesting back and forth between Chief Justice John Roberts and the Solicitor General Don Verrilli, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. And if you've ever read or heard some of the briefings or heard some of the, the, the transcript of Supreme Court, you know that it is not at all like the trial courts that you see here. Basically, the, the, the lawyers get three words out and the Supreme Court justices just start peppering them and interrupting them. You, you know, this is what I'm thinking. You're going to answer my question. Yeah, you said hello. Good. Let's move on. So Chief uh, uh, Justice John Roberts gets in this back and forth and it's, The focus was on the question, would a religious school that has married housing be required to afford such housing to same-sex couples? And you go back and you you read the transcripts. The Solicitor General didn't really want to answer the question, but when he was finally pressed, this was his answer, quote, You know, I, I don't think I can answer that question without knowing more specifics, but it is certainly going to be an issue. I don't deny that. It is. It is going to be an issue. Six years later, it's an issue. I, I mentioned those examples because that is what is happening in culture today. And depending on who you read or who you listen to, Christians, we are either on the verge of losing all our freedoms or Christians have nothing to worry about. We either must embrace being an exile or we need to, quote, shrug off our delusional persecution complex, end quote. Just based on the examples that I read, and there are others, I think we're on the verge of losing something. To me, the question is, what is the something? What are we on the verge of losing? And I think what we're on the verge of losing is easy Christianity on the verge of losing that. When you go back and you look at the history of America, I think you can make a legitimate argument that the de facto religion of America has been Christianity. It has not been instituted. It has not been deemed the official state religion. But we all know that it has been. When you go back and you look at our laws at the founding of America, they were shaped by Judeo-Christian morals. You cannot deny that. 
When you go back and you look at universities, universities were originally established to study Scripture. Harvard, the oldest university in America, has in its motto the word truth. And the word truth in Latin, I think, is six letters. And so what they did was they took three books and put the word truth over those three books. Do you know what two of those three books were? One was the Old Testament. One was the New Testament. And because I know you're like me, okay, Gary, what was the third one? The third book was the future of the Puritans that have yet to be written. Salem College, the oldest college in North Carolina, established by the Moravians, established by Christians to educate young ladies, and at the same time, part of the educational was biblical studies. It is not accidental that right down the road is Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. It's not accidental that I think one of the biggest hospitals in Charlotte is Charlotte Presbyterian. That hospitals have the name Catholic in them. Right? This, this is the culture that, that we grew up in, where everything on Sunday evening stopped. Right? You couldn't, we had blue laws. Y'all remember blue laws? You couldn't do certain things until after church got out. You didn't play ball on Wednesday night. Why? Because the culture, you and I, the environment that we grew up in, revolved around church and Christianity. So, with things the way that they are changing, it stands to reason then the environment that we see now, the culture that we are living in now, just opposed against the examples at the beginning, would make us as believers start to feel like exiles in our own land, would it not? But I actually have a problem with that statement. And this is my statement, and I, I want you to, to, to really hear this. Okay? Believers, you and I were exiles on this earth long before society said we were. We were exiles here long before our culture shifted from revolving around Christianity and church to, war, to revolving around secularism. We want to look at our environment now and go, you know what? We, we, we are exiles. And that's true, except we always have been. You go through and you look at Scripture and you look at the history. There has never been a time when God's people were not exiles. Yes, sometimes physically, but almost always theologically. Abraham was an exile. Moses was an exile. Noah was an exile. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were exiles. Jeremiah was an exile. Isaiah was an exile. You go through, John was an exile, Peter was an exile, Paul was an exile. The history of God's people is one of exiles. 
This morning in Sunday school, Debbie read that quote from C.S. Lewis, and, and I'm not going to get it right, but basically what C.S. Lewis wrote was, that I have this longing for something that this world can't fulfill. That must mean that I'm created for something beyond this world. What does he write in that quote? I'm an exile in the world in which we live. Yet we have a problem. We live here now. We live on this earth now, even though it is not our final home. When you became a believer, you were not taken out of this world. Remember, Jesus even prayed for us, right? That high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for believers. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Even Jesus recognized that we weren't going to just all of a sudden, oh, I'm a believer, and then be transported to heaven. That we stayed here. We are a people of exiles. Which raises the question, what does an exile look like? What should we look like? What are some adjectives that should describe us this morning? So as we finish up the books of Peter, I want us to look at five adjectives that should go in front of the word exile. And the first one is transformed. Believers are to be transformed exiles. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, this is the starting point, and it has to do with transformation. The only way that this world becomes a place of exile for you you is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you are at home in this world. And you can look around and you see a lot of people that are really, really comfortable in this world. Why are they so comfortable? Because they've not been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because they have not been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world becomes everything to them. It becomes their only hope. Go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry. Go ahead and rack up as much debt as you want to. Buy the biggest house. Buy the biggest boat. Buy the nicest car. Do whatever you want to. Live, just give into all your carnal desires. Go ahead. I mean, if, if the, the world is all you've got, you better enjoy it while, you've here, while you're here. But that, that, that joy is really a dead hope because it leads to death. And as the old joke goes, you don't take a U-Haul to the graveyard with you. They're not going to be pulling their boat behind the hearse. It's not going to happen. It's a dead hope that they have. And it is not until we are called out of darkness of the world into the marvelous light of Jesus that we now have a living hope that we have been transformed where we look more like Jesus and less like the world and part of that transformation that we have seen throughout the study of Peter is that we align ourselves under the authority of Jesus and the truth of God's word 
See, when we're transformed, we want to think and act biblically instead of think and act worldly. We want to cling to the truths found in Scripture. We cling to believing that God created the world. We cling to believing that there are only two genders expressed as male and female. We believe marriage is between one man and one woman. We believe God has the moral authority to find sin. We believe that we are all born sinners in need of redemption. We believe that redemption only comes through Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. We believe in the sanctity of life from birth through life and at death. We believe in a literal heaven and hell. We believe what Scripture has taught, and we believe, as Peter has pointed out, that Jesus is coming back to take those who have been called out of darkness into light. And that is transformation. Because the world doesn't believe those. So as believers, we have to live transformed lives where people see us as different. But it's a difference that is born out of a living hope of our Savior. Secondly, we are to be joyful exiles. Joyful exiles. You look in 1 Peter 1.6 and 1.8, you see that he uses the word joy. In this you rejoice. Though you have not seen him in verse 8, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, But rejoice. Rejoice. The first image that, that I thought about this was the, the Apostle John being sent to Patmos. Right? It was an island. It was rugged. They sent convicts there. If you look at, at Patmos now, you're going to see these beautiful hotels and these monasteries and this, the water. And it's just, you know, you can go visit the, the, the cave of Revelation and all this. It wasn't there when John went there. All right. You know what it was? It was a big rock in the middle of the ocean. And you know why he was sent there with all the other exiles? So that they would die and just be washed out to sea, be carried or, or whatever. So they didn't have to leave them. I don't know if John danced going to the boat or not. <laughs> but we got to be joyful exiles. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Peter writes, But rejoice if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Now he's writing to people who have been geographically exiled for faith, and they're going, What do you mean if? You know we're not at home, right, Peter? He says, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He says, rejoice. For them, it was not a theoretical issue. For us, up until maybe a couple years ago, maybe, I don't know, as we look at culture evolving and changing and feeling that pressure, for us, this was theoretical. Most believers in America cannot point to a specific time where we were persecuted for our faith. Oppressed, maybe, Made fun of a little bit, but actually persecuted? No. It's been a theoretical exercise. 
For them, it wasn't. And now I know you're going to say, but, but Gary, you, you know, why? why? Why should we rejoice? Because Peter says, if they persecute you, you are blessed. Jesus said, what? Blessed are you if they revile you because of me. There's a blessing attached to that. And we don't rejoice because we're, we're being persecuted. It would, it would look, I'm sorry, it would look stupid to sit there and go, yeah, persecute me some more. Bring it on. Right? We don't usually do that. But there is a blessing. Jesus says, you are going to be blessed because you have stood for me even in the face of persecution. Can we all agree this morning that it is much easier to be a Christian when nobody makes fun of you than when somebody makes fun of you? Can, can we just kind of agree on that? It's not hard. But man, world, society, culture starts looking at you a little bit differently. It takes more courage to stand. But even then, we're told to be joyful. And remember, it's not happiness. I know I've harped on this many, many times through the years, but happiness and joy are not the same thing. And as a believer, you've got to understand that. Happiness is a direct correlation to external responses. I am happy today because it's a beautiful day. That, the sunshine, sunshine make y'all happy makes me happy. Right? You wake up, it's gray, overcast, and, and rain, and you're like, oh, what an icky day. We're not as happy. External circumstances. Joy is internal. Joy is the internal truth produced in our souls that we belong to Jesus. That we are His. And the world can't take that away. And external influences don't dictate that joy. And we're told to rejoice. The Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill, right? Y'all familiar with that one? If, if somebody violates God's commandment, what, what word would you use to call that? So It's a three-letter word. Starts with S, ends and ends, called sin, right? If God has given us a moral imperative to rejoice and be joyful, and we're not, what might that be? Have you ever thought that, that, that just, just maybe that, that might be sin too? God told us to do it. We've been instructed to do it. And we, are, we can rejoice. Why? We can rejoice always. People go, how can I rejoice always? Right? Be joyful in all things. And people go, how can I rejoice always? We can rejoice always because Christ is in me and I am in Him. And the world cannot take that away. As exiles, we have got to be joyful. But then thirdly, we've got to be brokenhearted exiles as well. We've got to be brokenhearted exiles as well. 2 Peter 2, 12-15, you just see the darkness that Peter writes about. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be called and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed 
accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have all gone astray. Last part of verse 12 says, They will be destroyed in their destruction. We should not be happy about the darkness that we see around us. The darkness that we see around us should cause us to be broken-hearted exiles, broken-hearted over the sin in the world, over the flagrant violation of God's Word, the rejection of the Gospel, the rejection of salvation, the way people are turning to everything in the world and under the sun looking for happiness and, and, and life and, and meaning and, and not finding it because they're not looking for it over here in Christ. And if they would, they would find the meaning and longing they so desperately want. We should be broken hearted over that. We should be broken hearted over our culture moving away from Christian values. And at the same time, we should be brokenhearted over our sin. We should be brokenhearted over the fact that Jesus deserves better obedience from us than sometimes we give Him. We need to be brokenhearted over our complacency. Our lack of obedience. It's not just that unbelievers don't obey. Sometimes believers don't obey either. And we need to be brokenhearted over that so it propels us to engage in evangelism and, and missional efforts. And at the same time, that it, it prompts us to look in those deep, dark parts of our hearts that we don't want to expose so that we can live in better obedience to Christ as well. If we're not brokenhearted over our sin and the sin around us, what's going to end up happening is we're not going to look any different than the world. We need to be brokenhearted exiles. We also, fourthly, need to be active exiles. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Believers are not to be passive. We are not to be passive. Three times in the letters, Peter tells his audience to do good. To do good. For us, the word good has, has lost the moral connotation that it actually has, right? Well, how's your day? It's good. How's your hot dog? It's good. How's the sermon? It was great. Um, Saying if you're listening. Scripturally speaking, there is a connection between good and the moral righteousness of God. Otherwise, how do you know what is good? I know this kind of gets. This is kind of one of those discussions that that uh, apologists have done better than me. But we, we really need to understand the fact that I can do good somewhere. Good has been defined, and when you look at the way society acts, you really it's really quite quick to come to the conclusion society and people did not define good. <laughs> there has to be a moral lawgiver somewhere that says this is good and this is bad. And so the good that we are called to do is directly related to the goodness and the moral character of God. And yes, it has to do with telling people, sharing the gospel. Yes, it has to do with, yes, it has to do with all that, but it also has to do with just doing good. Things that, that we look as, as, as good, not being selfish, helping your neighbor. We need to mow the yard, rake the leaves. 
helping somebody in need. That's good. But it's connected to God's moral righteousness. And we're called to do good. We are called to be active. We are not called to be passive believers in our faith or in our culture. All right, Jesus, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to be what? He calls us to be salt and light. Two very distinct terms with two very distinct responsibilities. Do you know what salt does? Why was salt so important? Salt preserves, right? How many of you like a good country ham? I mean, I, I, I do. What, 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 how did we get country? It's been preserved in salt. And when you eat it, you know it. Salt is a preservative. We are told to be salt. Why? So that we can preserve the godly moral goodness, the godly moral character of God reflected in our culture, in our society. Part of being salt is that we influence and we, we advocate for policies that reflect God's moral goodness. And we, we, we advocate against policies that don't or that come in direct conflict with God's moral goodness. As believers, we are to have a preserving influence on culture. Now, I know the idea of cultural Christianity it ha has some drawbacks, and, and I understand that, but let me ask you this. Would you rather live in a culture defined by Christianity or a culture defined by the world? I would rather live in the one defined by Christianity and the moral goodness that comes from it. And that's why Jesus says, be salt. Do you know that there is no call in Scriptures for Christians to abandon culture to the world? There's never a call for us to retreat from culture. And when I say that, I'm just going to go ahead and address it because some people are going, but Gary, but Gary, but Gary, we got, we got this thing of separation of church and state. But just a moment, the context of that letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association is lost in that small quote. Because what the Danbury Association was asking for when they wrote to Jefferson was that Connecticut would get out of their church. And Thomas Jefferson wrote back saying, there is a wall there, and the wall is to keep the, church, the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. It has been misconstrued and retold so many times that people think it goes the other way around, and it does not. We're called to be active by being salt in our communities. We're also called to be light. What does light mean? do. Jesus is the light. What does Jesus do? What does it say? What did Peter write? That Jesus shined his light at us and called us out of the darkness. The point of being light is to call people out of the darkness of their sin and into the light of salvation with Christ. That's the, 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 the gospel being preached. That's the missional influence. That's the, the evangelism where we point other people to salvation in Jesus. And what does he tell us? He says, let that light shine before man. There should never be a question by anybody that you know whether or not you're a believer. Nobody should ever have to wonder 
They should know. Why? Because you radiate the light of Christ into their lives. That when they look at you, they see Christ. And they see His light. Now, look, they don't have to like it. It might make them uncomfortable. But Jesus didn't say make them comfortable. He said shine the light into the dark world. And when you read that here, when you read Matthew 5, make sure you also understand that Jesus doesn't tell us to become salt and light. He says that you are salt and light. I'm sure we can grow in those areas. Absolutely. But it's not something we work to become. We are. And we need to be active in our world as salt and light. But then finally, we need to be triumphant exiles. We need to be triumphant exiles. 1 Peter 5, 10-11 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter writes that as he is closing up, just reminding everybody, look, this world is not your home. You, you have suffered a little bit but on this world, but, but God is going to come back and He is going to establish you. He's going to restore you, confirm and, and strengthen you. And, and, and otherwise, when He comes back, you are going to reign and live triumphantly. There, there's a time coming when we will not have to worry about being exiles. Because we go live triumphantly in heaven through all eternity with Jesus. But, but, but you know what the beautiful part of that is? We don't have to wait until then. We can live those triumphant lives now because what? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what, he said, what did He say? He says, have, do not fear, for I have overcome the world. He's already triumphed over it. He already has. And it goes on and says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What, what, what is Jesus saying? What is John saying in his letter? He's saying, I've already overcome the world. You can already live triumphantly in victory over the world because you believe in me. Because you have been saved through me. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You want to live a triumphant life now, you live it through Jesus Christ who has saved you and redeemed you. That's the only way to live it. And that triumph was purchased for us on the cross by the ultimate exile. Right? Jesus was the ultimate exile. He left the perfection and the splendor of heaven. He left the angels and the elders worshiping Him and bowing down to Him. He left and stepped out of eternity into this world, into this sin-filled, nasty, yucky, ugly world that rejected Him and did not want Him to live a perfect, sinless life for us, to die on the cross for us to rise again on the third day for us so that we can be saved. And so through that, we can overcome the world now. Where we can live triumphantly now.
Folks, we've always been exiles. We always have been. And we need to live like it. Not with a chip on our shoulder. Not looking for persecution around every corner. But we need to live as the transformed, joyful, broken, hearted, active, and triumphant exiles God has said we are. And if we live like that, we will make an impact in our families, our jobs, our houses, our communities, the nation, and the world. Live like the exile you have been called to be. You've been listening to the Gary Talks About God podcast. Are you looking for a church? Well, Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church is a community of believers who exist to glorify God and see transform lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find us on the web at www.redbankmbc.com. Also, come visit us on Sunday at 8104 Red Bank Road in Germantown, North Carolina. Did you like this podcast? We put one out each and every week, so don't forget to subscribe. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we thank you for listening.